This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Minefields. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life uh, on this program. Today we discuss probably the greatest, most overarching dilemma of our modern lives. Although maybe I've preempted the conversation there because the topic is kind of about whether or not that's true or that's the way we should be thinking about it. Oh, look, I've tangled myself hopelessly already and we're only 35 seconds in. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is here to untangle me. Hey, Scott. You wanted to call it the greatest moral challenge of our times, didn't no, you? No, I did not want to call it that, but I kind of ended up <laughs> regretting it in the same way as the person who said that did. <laughs> Isn't it funny, though? So that, of course, was what Kevin Rudd said. Correct me if I'm wrong, Waleed. Was that end of 2007, beginning 2008? Well, I wonder if it was before he... Was it before he was Prime Minister? It was before he was Prime Minister, yes. So he was Prime Minister in November 2007. So it would have been earlier than that. Anyway, the problem is, as soon as you say that, there's no walking back. There's no policy priority. There's no form of compromise. There's no political maneuver. There's nothing you can do to shirk away from the reality of the greatest moral challenge of our time, apart from embracing it head on. And it, one of the things that just really struck me at the time, I mean, I'm, I'm not generally averse to the use of language that's morally serious in public conversation or political speech. I think that language can be incredibly dangerous. It can be a form of posturing and vanity. It can be an expression of contempt, a way of kind of downgrading or diminishing the moral ineptitude of one's opponents. High moral ideals, high moral sentiments can obviously simply be a form of vanity, of self-promotion, almost using morality as a kind of brand. I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily that Kevin Rudd was guilty of any of those things. Some may want to argue that. Um, I think it's a, still a conversation we need to have about the way in which morality or moral language shouldn't, should and should not be used in political language. But when you bring it into serious policy questions, when you do it into things that involves, if you like, the delicate process of compromise, of political representation, of the negotiation of competing interests, of international treaties of international cooperation, when you bring high moral language into that kind of environment, it can have detrimental effects. It means that if you do anything other than embrace that challenge fully, then you are failing. You are not taking the issue seriously. You are engaged in a form of vicious, uh, vicious compromise or even acquiescence to what ultimately will be a terrible common fate. That actually gets us really closely to what we're talking about, which is... A yeah, it does, yeah. But can I, can I just intervene Please. for a second here? I feel Rudd's a little mistreated on that quote, because he didn't just say, hey, this is the greatest moral challenge, you therefore have to do what I say. He said, as well as uh, an environmental and economic challenge... This is one of the greatest moral challenges of our time. That's not a precise quote, but my point is these other dimensions went along with it. I think what he was trying to do there was say, this is a hugely difficult challenge on all kinds of fronts, but let's not forget there's a moral dimension to this as well. Mm. 
as in we owe more than sort of narrow economic thinking uh, about this or even just narrow environmental thinking as though that's just kind of some isolated thing. This is something that calls on us in a moral register and demands a moral response from us. And I think to that, you would have to say bravo, wouldn't you? Mm, absolutely. Because that, that, that much is true. I think the problem with... Now, it, that quote really, I think, only became a problem for him when he, he dumped his emissions trading scheme. That's right. Because then it was like, hang on, you said... It's like you've forgotten the moral register to which you were calling us before. What, what's happening? Should I not take this seriously uh, anymore? And by extension, should I not take you seriously? So... I, the, the, the language, what I guess I'm saying is the language of itself, I didn't think was a problem. I think we're making this some kind of absolute challenge. A bit like the conversations we've seen around COVID, right? Whereby we talk about following health advice, which kind of obscures the fact that, well, health advice is narrow in its scope. It's answering a particular question. It's not giving you an ethical or definitive policy response mm, because mm. that definitive policy response, by definition, has all kinds of other imperatives it has to consider, right? A, a bit like that. I think the problem when you start using moralistic language in politics, if you misuse it or you're not attentive to its limitations, is that it actually glosses over the difficult bit. And, and the difficult bit is saying how do we place this moral challenge in context and how do we balance it against all kinds of other imperatives and challenges that are also moral in character. Mm. So when it's sort of saying there is only one moral consideration here, that's when I think you run into a problem. But as I read Rudd at the time, uh, and our producer has since confirmed he said it when he was opposition leader, so I think it was in August or something around that, 2007, and the quote is, it's one of the greatest scientific, economic and moral challenges of our time. I, I think the only problem is if you decide that there is nothing, no, no other area to which morality applies that therefore gives power or my policy imperative or whatever it is I'm urging, absolute authority such that any opposition to my particular prescription or my particular response becomes immoral. I think that's the transformation that we need to guard against rather than the presence of moral language around policy. Interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up because it seems to me, and I did think this at the time, and I've thought it even more since, that one of the reasons that Rudd brought the moral into that particular register of language was to make this an issue that is beyond the purview merely of scientists or merely of economists or policymakers. And it is something, in other words, that involves the people. It is something that is part of our common task, our common project, insofar as moral tasks are, in fact, common tasks. So the extent to which that was meant to be a kind of challenge, not just to politicians and policymakers, but also to the people, I think there is something in that that's not just noble, but also very, very important. But you're right. It's when the moral then becomes something that is used as something that then overrides, uh, that then gives some cause to treat other competing concerns, for instance, with, with a degree of contempt or derision. How can you be interested in that when the planet is due to be burning? Um, then I think there's something there, you're right, which is not just politically counterproductive, but also morally speaking, is bad faith. I do wonder, Waleed, it does seem to me that we have seen since 2007 when there was a tremendous degree, I think, of national unanimity, a surprising amount 
of approval, of consensus shown concerning the importance of Australia being fully, fully engaged, not just in reducing carbon emissions and not just in mitigation policies or in preventative as well as ameliorative measures, um, as well as both domestic and international cooperative arrangements or international agreements and treaties. Um, We've gone, of course, through over the last 15 years, the gauntlet of climate change being such a tremendously politicized issue, almost a kind of badge, a marker, according to which you stake your political alignment. Um, And then it's gone to something that I think you've described it in the past as almost being a kind of epistemological issue where people simply are not seeing the same world because of either uh, attention to or dismissal of certain forms of advice, certain forms of knowledge that come up about the world. I think we've seen something change over the course, maybe it's just been the last two years, maybe the roots of it go back further, that the levels, and there are a great many surveys, polls, studies that bear this up, the levels of overt what we might call climate change denialism are almost vanishingly low. So people who say that there's nothing wrong with the planet, or this is just part of the natural cycle of things, or human behavior since the industrial age has had nothing to do with this. That those levels of overt climate change denialism or denialism of climate science are vanishingly low. There seems to be broad acceptance that something is changing and changing for the worse in the conditions of our common home. And that human behavior and the emissions of carbon, the reliance on fossil fuels, has everything to do with that. Where there is difference, though, is where one places climate change on one's order of, let's call them, priorities. What is the thing that we want the federal government to give most attention to? What is the thing that should preoccupy us most? And I guess I've, I've been worried... I mean, there are general concerns about whether we should be thinking about ranking climate change as over and against other challenges to begin with. And that's something I think we need to get to in our conversation. But I guess I've, I've got two other concerns, though, with the way that we've come to think about climate change at the moment. And leaving, hopefully, hopefully, some of the extremely politically divisive language and posturing behind. One is that And this maybe goes back to something that Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, held out as as a fate that has been inflicted on the world due to the mass circulation of newspapers, which report goings-on from all corners of the earth, goings-on that people who are reading the newspaper probably have nothing to do with and have no agency over. Kierkegaard said that when confronted with something over which we have no agency, our only moral response is deep emotion. And then he raised the question, is deep emotion a moral response? In other words, if I really, really, really believe that climate change is an issue, is that the extent of my agency over this particular question? And I think one of the, one of the side effects, one of the consequences of elevating climate change to an issue that is dealt with in summits in Glasgow, for instance, or by climate scientists or by economists or by entrepreneurs and technology developers – is that it so greatly minimizes our purchase on, our agency over this care of our common home, that it means that all that's left is deep feeling. 
And then that deep feeling produces feeling one way or the other. But what I, what I think that means then, and this is my second point, is that that deep feeling then responds primarily to what we've discussed on previous programs as the eventification of modern life. So much of our thinking about issues that transcend the everyday revolve around huge events like, for instance, a summit in Glasgow or, for instance, the catastrophic bushfires at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. So that we have these, we peg our attention around these huge events, these cataclysmic or these momentous occasions like a summit or like catastrophic fires. But it means that our attention is peaked over those times. Our emotions are engaged over those times. And then once those events subside, or once we re-enter something like normal life, or we re-enter something like the everyday, then it means that our engagement with how much climate change should matter to us, to what extent it impinges upon our daily lives, that also then tends to wane. And that's why we've also seen this massive divergence, not so much in belief over climate science, but over what's called the salience of the climate change issue, just how important it is, just what priority we think our leaders should give it. Yeah, I've, I've often wondered whether or not news is the very worst way that human beings could have come to learn about climate change for the reason that it's just so constant, uh, so ambient, someone once said, I can't remember who, and just so incremental that it's just like there's a climate change story every single day. So I, I like to imagine the counterfactual scenario where instead of us having learnt about climate change through media and through news media in a daily sense, it just turned up as a story in the media one day when, like at some later point in the whole awareness of it, you know what I mean? So like it just turned up one day and go, um, by the way, <laughs> we've just noticed that this has already happened and this is what's going to happen and bang, here is climate change rather than something you could debate over a very long period of time. And those were right in the middle of the crisis. This is, you actually, you, yeah. you argued for precisely this concerning COVID coverage, actually. Oh, did I? I you don't did. even remember that. You did. Yeah, right. But anyway, I mean, obviously it's completely bizarre thought experiment. It could never happen that way. But what I think of is if it were that way, then it would have struck the human mind completely differently. Mm. It's not an issue at that point. It's a genuine crisis and we try to respond to it as a genuine crisis at the risk of contradicting what I apparently said before about COVID in the way that it was with COVID, right? We mm. sort of, COVID just arrived. It's like, here it is. It wasn't forecast 10 years out or, if COVID was forecast 10 years out, we would have done nothing about it. Yeah, but it arrived and it didn't arrive. It well, okay, that's, that's a separate conversation. Well, well, no, no, sorry, what, what I'm saying is that was your point. That yeah, yeah, okay. Well, certainly for Australia, that's yes, true. That's I don't right. think it was true elsewhere. Yeah. But, but it arrived in the sense that here is a crisis. We have to respond, oh, my God, there's a national lockdown. It's like that's a very extreme thing. We'd never even imagined such a thing was possible in our lives, and suddenly we were living it because the crisis was manifest, at least in our minds, if not on our streets. But climate change it never had the benefit of, of that. Now, then I think through, okay, so what are the implications of my thought experiment there? Uh, is it that by delaying that sort of awareness of climate change and only bringing it to our attention at the moment when it's a fully formed crisis, is it that that would have allowed us to register its gravity properly so that we would have given it the proper moral character that it deserved? Or is it that it would have led us to deal with it as crisis and therefore not bring in 
appropriate moral balancing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I'm, I'm a little bit torn on that because on the one hand, nothing has a claim on being a crisis if climate change doesn't. I mean, you're talking literally about the survival of the habitable planet. It, everything else is derivative from that. But it doesn't follow from that, does it, that it's the only thing that matters. And that might seem like an illogical thing to say, and it's certainly not the kind of language that climate advocates would use because their whole point is no planet B, right? That there is no other issue. You solve this issue and then you worry about other issues. I hope that's not being unkind to them or mischaracterising it, but that's my impression of the way that the advocacy works. Either way, that's not quite true. So I feel like we're in this paradox where you're trying to deal with something huge, but then you're balancing this question of how huge can it be in response, in policy formation? What exactly are we capable of in response? And you've seen this with COVID, even something as enormous as a pandemic, there reaches a point where taking measures to resist it just runs into fatigue. It no longer matters how serious it is. Right? It, just, it just doesn't. People just cannot sustain the sort of level of response that's that's required. Mm. And so there's all kind. Of, I just find myself sort of beset with paradoxes and and inconsistencies on this front, perhaps because we've never really, as a species, experienced a challenge quite like it. Okay. Before we bring in our guest, can I raise one point, though? Because I think the way that yep. you set it out, I think it begins gesturing towards something like an avenue ahead. Here's where, I mean, the, early on in the piece, I'm sure you recall, because we had a wonderful extensive conversation with Dalia Nasser uh, about it at the time, there was a great deal of enthusiasm, of optimism, on the part of a good many climate advocates or climate change activists and advocates saying, see, when the health of the globe is at stake, partisan differences fall away, forms of massive international cooperation are discovered, and all of the economic barriers that were cited for why we couldn't do this, why we can't divest ourselves of fossil fuels, why we can't do this, suddenly all of those things become negligible in the face of enormous, massive, almost unprecedented spending efforts. In other words... You're talking about COVID now. I'm talking, talking about, about COVID, COVID now. COVID. Yeah, yes. yes. And added to that, the faith in the advice of Ex scientific In scientists, yeah. exactly right. I guess one of the problems that always struck me, though, about that kind of, that sort of looking for silver linings on the otherwise very dark COVID cloud was that COVID represents a suspension of everyday life and the responses to it represent a suspension of everyday life. The fatigue that you're talking about is the thing that has worn down the patience, the emotional fortitude, the social ties of so many people precisely because of the suspension of all of the things that make life livable, that make life sociality nourishing. Further to that, I think in many cases there have been remarkable jobs done, usually at the state level, on balancing scientific advice and and broader concerns. So how do we look after, for instance, the mental health of people who don't have families? How can we create or form support bubbles, for instance, for those who don't have intimate partners? Um, so there are various forms of kind of policy amelioration or certain forms of policy balancing. So it's not just the advice of chief health officers or scientists, uh, but it's also these other considerations that democratic politicians need to bring to mind. Those are the various ways of kind of tending to the dimension to the everyday, the dimension of the everyday that continue to matter. Um, but many of the 
that's not what a lot of the kind of climate advocates were saying, that, you know, here's where we need to move politics to the side and here's where we need to hand the reins over effectively to scientists who know what they're talking about and know the extent of the problem, know the dimensions of the solution. I think it seems to me that one of the things that that is yet for us fully to embrace, even if we accept the climate science wholeheartedly, what we need to discover are those ways in which because we have so despoiled the conditions of our common home, because we have jeopardized and thrown to the wind our obligations to future generations to pass on to them something like a self-renewing world that continues to bear in that world the resources that they need to live fully, to live well. Because we've taken paid such scant attention to those, I think, fundamental obligations, to the care of our common home, to our obligations to future generations. We've not fully embraced, I think, the need to marry addressing climate change fully with something like creating the conditions in everyday life in which that address of climate change can be fully embraced in turn. In other words, we've still left so, many of the res- so much of the response to climate change to responses out there to responses at summits or on the part of scientists or on the part of politicians. And then we've seen those responses as posing intolerable limits on our quote-unquote way of life, the way we live now, rather than discovering, and I think democracies ought to be the perfect mechanism within, within which this happens, discovering forms of life that own climate change as safeguarding, as attending to the conditions of possibility of our common life, and then seeing those ways in which our common life can then take a richer, fuller, more sustainable shape in light of that. And I think that the failure to do that, that's where the saliency gap comes in. That's why we think of climate change as taking things away from us rather than cultivating the conditions within which a truly moral, genuinely democratic life is possible. Right. And what was interesting to me about the onset of COVID was how that language was retrieved, right? The idea yeah, of sacrificing for one another. That's right. It was only brief, but it, but it was definitely, I remember that moment where it was like the whole register of politics had completely yeah, shifted. It's true. Politicians were giving us bad news and saying we would have to make sacrifices. Mm, and it was like, true. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Like where, where had that all been? But I think one of the things that's interesting is because of the erosion you're talking about there, it's almost as though we... Oh, everybody, but advocates, all kinds of people, feel that the only real way to get a response is to sound the loudest, most moralistic alarm you can. Hmm. And at that point, then you're having a very different conversation to one that might otherwise have been possible, it seems to me. Yeah. And I think that probably points in the direction of maybe our respective dis-ease over some of the tactics of groups like Extinction Rebellion. Um, I mean, surely we can all be on the same page. Uh, and yet I think there's something about the tactics there that are ultimately, finally, detrimental to a genuine de- democratic response. You're listening to The Minefield. If you just joined us, you can uh, listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. But you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Anik Valdo is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sydney and a member of the Sydney Environment Institute. Anik, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you very much for having me. 
So we've tried to sketch out the terrain, I guess, of, of the topic. We didn't want to have a climate scientist or a public policy expert on for this particular discussion because I think that we've heard a great deal from many of them and we're very, very grateful for the work that they've done. It seems to me, though, that the issue at this moment is a different one from the right policy settings. The issue is how do we bridge this gap between broad acceptance of climate science, broad acceptance of the ravages that have been wrought upon our common home? And how does that then register in something like the life of the everyday? How can we begin bridging that gap, knowing that in the background, there are still a great many people saying that the great impediment to addressing climate change is democratic politics itself? Yeah, um, thanks for laying out the terrain in this way. And um, I actually um, strongly resonated with how your conversation started about, and you mentioned the moral language and consider whether or not it's detrimental um, and what kind of use it is to use it. And um, what just spontaneously came to my mind and which also um, relates to what you just said is that Look, it's it's 14 years on or 13 years on, and uh, the situation has entirely changed. So back in 2007, I mean, the, the consequences, the everyday consequences of climate change were not as tangible as they are right now. So if you just look around the world. So back then, I think you had to work differently to bring to the minds of the people the threat, that a threat that would materialize in the future. So some sort of different strategy was needed there. And you, you mentioned moral language and our responsibility. So respo responsibility comes in towards future generations, right? So, so it's kind of oriented towards the future. Whereas these days, I think um, things become a little easier because uh, we're confronted with the consequences, with bushfires, with uh, droughts, with uh, hot temperatures, heat, um, name it. So I think at that point, you can just go realistic, right? You, you just um, and appeal not so much to the moral obligations. It's always, I find, I, I have a rather pessimistic view of human nature and always think that um, motivating people by appealing to their moral obligations, um, that might work with some, but probably not with a lot of people. So uh, an easier way, and that uh, also connects with ideas about um, how we discuss a climate change as a political issue. So I think a, a more straightforward way that relates to the situation that we're now faced with is just appealing to people's interests. So interests of everyday life. So interests of having a life um, that they consider livable, that they can embrace, that they want to have from their own point of view, but then of course also from the point of view of their children. So you don't need all this abstract kind of um, language and, and, and sort of the big arguments, you can just sort of go in right where you are and appeal to just very concrete um, desires and needs of people here and now. And I think what, what hasn't been done that much, but I'm working with a group of people who address, um, sort of looks at uh, climate anxiety and tries to use uh, or tries to think about emotions of great motivator for actions. So I think what hasn't been done yet so much is just to break down um, the very abstract discourse and connect it with very concrete interests of people 
um, that are not on the face of it directly related to climate change, but actually, if you point it out, if you point out those relations, then they are. So concrete examples would be um, think about just well, just the the farming industry, right? You can sort of. Uh, describe the issue at hand. Just today I read an article about uh, National Farmers Federation that they want commitment to net zero in 2050 because they fear that if they don't go along that they will be sanctioned. So there's the fear of not being able to do what they want to do, of continuing with their jobs, of losing money, all of this. And I think it's just about building connections between very concrete everyday concerns like uh, financial security, food security, um, supporting our children, their lives, having a future life, and then also connecting this up with actually, um, yeah, with, with those broader concerns about climate change. And um, you mentioned the issue of ranking concerns. The way I think of it, it's really treating the threat of climate change as as the stage we're on and uh, we have to deal with it. And it, it's not a question, as you rightly said, uh, there are hardly any people who deny that it's happening. It's a matter of how we address it and how we address it in our daily lives and how ready we are to transition to, to new ways of dealing with it and how ready we are actually to, to channel our fears about the future because it is quite quite uh, terrifying to think about the future when nothing is just simply continuing as, as it has, right? This is uh, deeply unsettling, I think, for a lot of people. Um, so the easy way then is just to go and uh, not deal with it, but that just won't do. So just to sum up my thought here, I think uh, it's really about building connections between everyday concerns and the broader issues and breaking down the abstractness of, of the problem and to see um, that it's actually here right now. So, Anik, that, that seems to me like it all must be true. But it also points out to me why it is that climate change is such a difficult issue, perhaps even an impossible one, for democracies to confront. Because if everything must be presented in the form of interests, the, the problem that uh, it seems to me that you have is that those interests will be most crushed on time horizons that have nothing to do with the lives of the people being asked to take action. And so, uh, if anything, what's been revealed as like the great failure, the great systemic failure of democracy in this moment is that it can't do intergenerational stuff very well, if at all. People who are not yet born don't get a vote. Largely what we're seeing is the interests of young voters losing out in elections to the interest of older voters. We certainly had that demonstrated to us quite graphically in Australia in the last election where, you know, franking credit to superannuation policy, retirement tax, whatever it was called, was, well, some analysts think it was decisive uh, of the election, but other things, house prices, so negative gearing policy, all of these sorts of things became the thing that brought Labor down. And so... In other words, one way of reading that, I think a compelling way of reading that, is that older, the interests of older voters trump the interests of younger voters. It seems that young, sorry, older voters, probably you could say anyone who's middle-aged and up, either are incapable or not terribly inclined to vote for the interests of their children if it means sacrificing their own. And so it seems that if democracy is going to have a compelling response to something like climate change, 
it needs some way of stretching its notion of interests across time in a way that's really unnatural for mm. it to do. And so I think about, you know, the democracies that have responded well. Well, they're probably... What would you say? The UK has responded well, but that goes back to the idea that Margaret Thatcher was concerned about climate change. And I don't think it's too cynical to say that one of the reasons she was concerned about it was that she was looking to crush the coal unions at the time. Um, You look at the way that the United States responded to acid rain and the hole in the ozone layer by um, declaring war on CFCs. Well, that's very much connected to the immediate interest of the United States, being that they had a competitive advantage in producing, manufacturing the things that were going to replace them. So there were short-term interests that could be drawn upon. But what do you do in a nation like Australia where the short-term interests don't line up that way? It's easy to flog Australia for its response to climate change. And I think in many respects that flogging is deserved. But we do have to acknowledge that part of the reason that we've behaved in this way is that we are a resource-based economy, at least to a much larger extent than the economies of Europe, for example, that are now lambasting us. Um, And so it wasn't in our short-term interests. And it may not be that we are worse than other nations. It might just be that on this, the logic of interests doesn't work for us because the only interests that really speak to us are in time horizons beyond our voting lives. I think there are different types of interests. So the ones you just mentioned were mainly touching on economical issues. Of course, they're huge, and that's especially so when you have liberal governments, right? But it it reached a point where um, much more fundamental uh, interests are at stake. So um, you you talked about it in your introduction. So to dramatise the whole issue, I don't even think it's dramatising if you look at the modellings, is it's the survival of the species, right? It's the survival of the planet. Again, then we yeah, look at yeah, the but future. I'm going to die anyway, right? Yeah. So the, yeah, the, bit, exactly. the bit where the species gets rubbed out, I'm not here for that. Yeah, so, that's right. So, well, you don't so is know. it really an interest? <laughs> you don't really know. It might go very fast, right? The bushfire well, might be that's true. Yeah. So you don't know how nature will strike, and you don't know when it will happen, and it's very all is very unpredictable. And then the problem of imagining all these possibility comes in. So, so you can always ask, say, this is not in my personal interest because, oh, um, you know, my house is in the city, it's well protected, I, I, I won't suffer from it. Or I'm rich enough to just evacuate when things get really bad. Um, so, yeah, there are different types of interests. And some, of course, I mean, we know that, that the poorest will be um, struck by the consequences of climate change more than uh, the rich. And it has already happened. So if you look at uh, the island states or even in um, Sahel Africa, it's happening there. And it's not that there is no immediate interest there. And when you said that Australia doesn't really have an interest, I was thinking really, um, when I talked to people in Europe about Australia's stance too, no, that was when the bushfires were raging. And they were all saying, but Australia is at the forefront of climate change. It's such a dry continent. How can people just not be interested in doing something about it? So there's a a bit of a disconnect there, right? You have the economic interests and then you have other interests. But the economic interests, and I think that is my general point, are not uh, to be seen in isolation from those broader interests. So, for instance, um, again, back to the agricultural example, how can you think of uh, doing agriculture in not just in the, in the far future, but in a few years when just water isn't available to the extent that it's been? And that's already been the case, right? Um, the Western kind of plains ran out of water. So there's, there's a question about just um, what, what is already happening? What, how do I respond to this? What is in my interest right now, right here? 
and what needs to be done. So I think we need to distinguish between these different types of interests. Um, if you've just joined us on the radio, this is The Minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host. And Nick Valdo is a professor of philosophy at the University of Sydney, who's our guest today. Anik, this is, this is wonderful. I'm really glad the two of you have taken the conversation down the, the, the path of interest. And I really do think that one of the ways in which democracy simply cannot be uh, overcome or sidestepped in the way that we deal with this is precisely because democracy is the best mechanism that we have whereby uh, members of a common political body, members of a common political community can attend to one another's concerns. It, it may be very unfashionable or even extremely controversial to say this now. I, I don't have huge problems, I'll admit, with, for instance, national MPs advocating strongly, strongly for their communities who are uh, extremely reliant on the production of coal or the use of fossil fuels, worried that their communities are going to disappear as the result of climate change mitigation, prevention, or adaptation measures. I think there's something, there's something right about the importance of representatives within a representative body advocating strongly for those who, who are fearing fundamentally the disappearance of a community, a way of life that means a great deal to them. Now, I don't think that should be the end of the matter. I don't think that that's the sort of advocacy that should then hold hostage an entire process. But I think one of the things that defines democracy, you can even take this all the way back to Rousseau. Rousseau not talking, of course, about democracy per se, but about the health of well-functioning social political communities. One of the things that we do is we attend to one another. Uh, the, the, the strong feelings of some members of a community must necessarily infect, affect the feelings of a whole. And I guess th th this is where, uh, taking up Walid's point about the extent to which young voters have been, it's probably too much to say systematically disenfranchised, but you could at least say that their interests have been given second, third, fourth order priority. One of the things that we also do in democratic communities is that when one portion of our common body is in anguish, are expressing feelings of deep anxiety, are expressing, articulating as clearly, as passionately, maybe to some extent irrationally or to, to a kind of unbalanced way, but are simply saying that it is our lives, the lives of our children that are being neglected, that are being trampled on, that are being dismissed here. There is something fundamentally unhealthy then about a broader democratic majority saying, okay, but you just haven't grown up yet, or okay, but wait until you enter the real world, or okay, but what you're asking for just simply isn't practical. So this is my, that's a very long way. You raised the issue of affect before. How are these competing, very, very strong expressions of fear? Fear for the disappearance of a coal-based community. Fear of the disappearance of a sustainable future. How are these balanced within a vibrant democratic community where the voices are given something like full weight? There really is a process of hearing, of attentiveness. No one is made to feel demeaned or dismissed. And yet in the middle of that, 
something like consensus or, again, what Rousseau called a common mind is found in the middle of it. That, that surely is what everything that we're talking about hinges on. Yes, um, thanks. That's that's. I, I really like that the attending to to the fears and uh, the different people who have different fears in different contexts and representing people is of course um, the job of MPs. And um, so how we do, how do, how do we deal with this? And um, before I come more directly at the issue of effect, I want to say something about the um, sort of the framework that I think is problematic and why certain uh, conversations um, are still not had and perhaps cannot be had. I think the framework that prevents uh, these conversations from um, getting started, for instance, with uh, coal-based communities um, or with farmers or other, you know, uh, industry branches that are affected by um, um, a shifting market, it's really that um, I think people tend to, and the, again, I think this is <laughs> probably what human beings tend to do, that we, we kind of stabilize our expectations about the future, that we just think, okay, this is reality, this is what we're dealing with, has worked in the past, um, this is where I had my job in the past, this is how I earned my money, this is really important to me, so let's protect it, right? This is kind of lying at the heart of conservatism, that you just work with what you have. Problem, of course, is that, well, it's, it's, it's not new that things are developing and shifting. We had many of those periods before. Think of um, the beginning, you know, the Industrial Revolution, where inventions were made uh, or, or things were discovered on a weekly basis that changed people's life, like the, the light bulb or other things. So, so we are currently in a phase of change. And I think there's no, it's not good to just ignore it because then you would just lose out on uh, actually be, being ready for the change. So that is the whole discourse on uh, resilience, building resilience. Can right? I just, you got to deal with it. Can I just mm. point out just very, very briefly, though, Anik, it, it, is, it is worth pointing out, I think, that historically, traditionally, right up to mm. the end of the late 19th, early 20th century, mm. it was historically the left that was strongly in favor of forms of rapid industrialization, of coal-based economies because of the, mm. the opportunities it provided workers were historically mm. opposed to immigrant work, workforces. And, mm. and there is a strong strain running not, through, not just through uh, Northern European political life, but also, of course, through the UK, of conservationism and conservatism joining hands as preserving precisely that which is most valuable over and against the innovations, the ravages of industrialized economies. Yeah. So I'm just when I mean conservatism, I mean just like the desire to preserve the status quo, right? Mm. So I think that is, and this brings me to the topic of fear because I think this really lies at the heart of it. So, so. Um, Working with a stable framework gives some sort of security because you can plan the future, you can rely on what you know. There's no need to, to shift your beliefs, your habits, your routines. Um, you can just continue doing what you're doing and that gives you security. Um, but, um, of course, this is not working. So what you said about having these conversations, I think this is really um, a constructive way of dealing with the current situation and just attending to those fears of different groups, attending to the fears of people who will lose their jobs. Um, I don't think, um, <laughs> I personally think it's just a matter of time before certain industries break away. I mean, look at the car industry and how they're shifting and, um, and certain cars will just not be produced anymore. And um, 
since Australia doesn't have its own car industry, and that will have repercussions for us here as well. So, yeah, sort of starting a conversation with these different um, groups with their, their very own interests. And when we mentioned the young people, and um, it's very um, frustrating, actually, to see also how they were dealt with during the pandemic and that they were not really taken seriously. Or uh, let's not put it that way, but... Um, it was quite, I think, in, in different countries all over the globe, we, we saw this phenomenon that they felt left out and they were struggling with the situation. And um, and I, I fear uh, it's obvious, actually, that in the, in the climate discourse, it's similar, right? And bringing, yeah, starting political conversations and conversations about interest, I think, is really the key here. And to, and I, I guess what I always think of as the task of, political discourse is really to negotiate those interests, right? Um, so you, it's one thing to say um, climate change doesn't exist, at least it seems that we are getting away from this right now. But once you accept that it, it, it requires us to adjust our actions and to kind of enter new territory, it's not a matter of what, it's a matter of how and how you do that. I think there, that that's exactly where and this relates to the point about the scientists and what they can, if it's good just to say, oh, the scientists just should um, be heard and then we know what to do with the future. I don't think that's right. I think what scientists do, they give us modelling, they analyse the, analyze the status quo, they, uh, they give us tools to uh, see the future on the basis of what is happening right now. But the how, how we're dealing with those developments, that is something I think that has to... Uh, um, happen um, in those conversations, and I think um, that is really where, yeah, politics comes in, and um, where 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 it's so important. This is where the moralistic approach to it fell apart, though, isn't it? Because especially in Australia, because the political phenomenon in Australia was that those most exercised about climate change, who were the most vocal in advocating for it and perhaps who were most influenced in their voting by it, were those who were least affected by it economically. Mm. And so climate change action and voting for climate change action really became a luxury good. Mm. On the other side of it, you had people whose lives were completely affected, or at least they thought their lives were going to be completely affected in the sense that they thought they were going to lose jobs and have... Mm. Um, lives that were just too expensive to maintain as a result of skyrocketing energy prices or, or whatever um, the, the fear is, they were basically being lectured to saying, well, this is a great moral challenge. So wh what I think the problem there was the cost of the morality never fell on those who were claiming it. Hmm. And when you are being told that you must pay a price for something by someone who will not pay that price... There is really no moral persuasiveness in that, is there? There, there can't be because the, the whole thing that makes something moral and a kind of moral imperative is the notion that there will be a sacrifice. It's, it's completely hollow when it mm. comes from those who aren't prepared to make it or, or are being called on to make it. Yeah, I think that's right. And that comes back to my pessimistic um, conception of human nature. Um, <laughs> I, I, I work on philosophers who, who share this pessimistic conception. And um, so what drives us most is uh, self-interest. Of course, there are these moral emotions and our care for the near and dear and uh, our sympathy with those who suffer. And this takes me to another point that came up earlier. Emotions are fickle, right? They come and go. And this is related to the eventification that, um, Scott, you mentioned earlier. 
um, they come and go and the media is so good at, at, at just fueling those emotions whenever it's useful because emotions are great motivators. But um, at the end of the day, emotions also tie in with interest and very concrete interests. And um, as you said, uh, Walid, if you don't need to pay the price, then uh, how ready are you to sacrifice something? So, and then again, I think the whole process of negotiation has to start. And also, I think the big task ahead is really to um, chart pathways for those who will have to transition into other jobs to provide that support to uh, work with their concrete interests and take those interests seriously. And, yeah, but and, just and take them of, along with the crisis rather yes, than yes, as secondary right. to Very it. That, that was the thing. Very so one, one of the things that frustrated me, and I think it has changed a little bit recently, to be fair, but one of the things that always frustrated me was this idea that, oh, but look at all the jobs that will be created via a transition to renewables. It's like, yes, but that doesn't mean anything unless mm. the person losing the job is the one who's getting the job. Yeah, that's right. right? Absolutely. And, if the new and we job, saw that. So we saw that in a kind of a very different context. And um, I'm from Germany, and in, uh, when the war came down, and uh, Eastern Germany um, sort of found itself in the situation that although the old industries were just dead, there, there was no capital, there was nothing, no one invested in the eastern countries of Germany. And that is exactly what happened. Those people then uh, were just left behind, and they were often uh, at an age where they couldn't, they could have, I think, if there had been, you know, if if, if governments had put in place appropriate support programs to retrain those people. They could have could have transitioned into other industries, but that didn't happen. And that was catastrophic, actually, for the development of nationalism and anti-establishment rhetoric and so on and so forth. It's, it's worth reminding ourselves that the Gilets jaunes protests, of course, in France have been over exactly the same mm. issue. Fuel excise, fine, but why are we having to bear the brunt? Of that burden, I, I think reassuring populations of equity, of refusing the temptation to treat portions of the population with contempt, I think that's just that has to be crucial mm. for any form of climate negotiation. But can I just point out, Anik, Walid, mm. the two of you have just made, I think, the decisive case for why the franchise must be extended to younger voters. If we, yeah, I agree. I if, agree if we yeah. are correct, if we are correct, that this only works if full-throated, chest-beating, red-blooded representation is given <laughs> to those communities who are most at risk by climate mitigation policies, by, fuel, by carbon reduction policies, then surely we have attendingly, not just a moral obligation, but a democratic obligation to extend the franchise to those who will bear the consequences of our failure to act appropriately into the future. It seems to me that this is how it must work. There's no alternative but to ensure that full representation is given to those who simply have no other outlet for their anxiety apart from taking to the streets. Right. So then you get into an argument about how young exactly, and you get to David Ronsonman's argument about six years old. I, think <laughs> I, love that. I um, still love but, but actually, there's a natural limit there that means you can't solve the problem because to do this properly, you would need to give the vote to the unborn. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I don't know how many generations of unborn. They'd probably outnumber the currently living. <laughs> so they, they would decisively tilt elections, but you can't do it, which means that in the end, while I agree with the point you've made there, Scott, it's really a problem of political, moral, solidaristic, I don't know, whatever word you want to use, imagination, yeah, isn't it? That is true. And, and this is why I guess I picked you up before, Anik, on that language of interests. 
um, and I, I appreciate what you're trying to do there is is get us to think about interest in a perhaps more complicated way. But the I still come back to the problem being that the time scale doesn't match. And when that doesn't match, it's like that's one of the structural contradictions you have in a democracy trying to respond. And I, I, don't, I don't know what the solution to that is really mm. other than letting it reach such a point of crisis that mm. you reach a moment of change, which is kind of what we're seeing in Australia this week, maybe. Yeah, the problem, of course, is that climate change is very peculiar in that it, you know, even if you stopped carbon emissions right now, the, the, the consequences would go on and materialise 30 years mm. on. And so, so this is really difficult and complicated just to wrap our heads around. Um, I think the, the thing where I always uh, think like you cannot shut it off, you cannot just not do anything is when you look at the future of your children and when you think about how that ties in with what you personally care about. And then you can, of course, as I said, emotions are great motivators, start thinking about, okay, what are these tiny steps that each one of us can take, right? And um, I mentioned just the logic of the market. It is quite powerful. And you can, of course, start thinking about how in your local community, in your local area, you can engage in conversations, in in action, in uh, also in how you organize your um, spending, your life, your transportation, your, your holidaying. This is all part of what a colleague of mine called a cultural change. So in a cultural change, it happens on the ground. It's, it's about mm. all of us and about all of us trying to face a future that can be, it must not necessarily be scary, right? I, I just thought about it this morning, that it can also be a, a huge chance to actually develop a, a healthier and a more livable future. Anik, thank you. We are, alas, out of time. But I guess that's the nature of a topic like this, isn't it? It's never quite exhausted. Um, it's been wonderful to have your company through our navigation of it. That's uh, Anik Voldo, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Sydney. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.